Pastor Xavier Reese explains, eternal life isn't achieved by who you are, but by whose you are. This eternal life is obtained through a new birth, as you know. It's not something you pay for. It's not something that you obtain because you join a church scroll. It's not because you are a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Calvary Chapelist or whatever. It's because you are born again. When you're born again, you have eternal life. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. The Gospel of John, three epistles, and the book of Revelation. There's much about the love of God written by the Apostle, meaning the one who God loved, the Apostle John. And as our character study of John continues with Part 2 today, Pastor Xavier begins a survey of what this prolific writer set out to communicate to us about the God of love. Let's listen. John, as we saw, was a rugged fisherman who was called a son of thunder. True to his nature, he desired to call down fire from heaven to smite the Samaritans because they kind of rejected him because he set his face to Jerusalem. But Jesus transformed the son of thunder to a son of light. There is the hope for all of us. As a result, John was used by our Lord to reveal the Son of God through his writings, as well as many other spiritual truths, there are of the greatest value to the Christian theology. Our first and foremost responsibility is to biblical theology that will always be the measure for man's systematic theologies. Biblical theology comes right from the text, right in its context. Man organizes and puts them all in categories, but our biblical theology must judge those systematic orders. Systematic theology is a step down from biblical theology. You want to go right from the scriptures. John is the author, as you know, of five books. We mentioned that last time in the New Testament. The Gospel of John portrays Jesus as the Son of God and selects various series of eights with the purpose that people might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and in believing they might have eternal life. That's the purpose of Gospel of John in John 20, 31. There are eight miracles in John. There are eight private interviews in John. And he uses all these for the very purpose of proving giving evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And as people read the Scriptures, that's why new believers, we tell them, read John. Some people ask me, well, you know, this guy's a non-believer. What do I tell them to read? Tell them to read John. (laughs) John's a great gospel. The miracles communicate the transformation of divine power. The interviews affirm the theme of power to as many as received them. To them he gave authority to become the children of God, John 1.12. His first epistle is a witness of God being life, light, and love. And those who walk in these have fellowship with God and are His children through the sacrifice of the incarnate Son. The opening verses, 1 John 1, 1 through 3, give you that. 
The book is written against the Gnostics who were teaching special knowledge, speculations of these emanations that you had to climb up to to get to God, declaring that God being spirit and man being matter couldn't become one. Therefore, they were denying that Jesus Christ had a literal body. That's why he opens up his first epistle like that. And so that's the backdrop behind it. It's a good uh, test to see if you're a Christian, First John. Uh, he gives you certain purposes, four or five reasons why he wrote the epistle. The second epistle of John is a witness of having discerning love, not being a naive, unthinking, open Christian to anything and anyone, rejecting deceivers, actually. First John, verse 7 and 9 in particular. So we're to be discerning on who we welcome. The third epistle of John is encouragement to love and help those who are doing the work of Christ and a warning about Diotrephes, who loved the preeminence among men. He's named there in 3 John, verse 5 and 9. People who set themselves up and they don't want to fellowship with anybody. They're the chosen frozen. Then there's the book of Revelation. Is the unveiling of Christ as a high priest of heaven who stands in the midst of his churches and sees everything and who will remove his church from the earth before the pouring out of God's wrath and establish his kingdom. Revelation 3.10 is a key verse, keeping us from the hour that will come to try all those who are earth dwellers. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, John tells us in Revelation 19.10. Those are the five books that he wrote. Now, we've seen John as a person. We've seen him also as an apostle and that. So we want to look at his theology through these five books, and they're not going to be exhaustive, but sufficient enough to see the uniqueness of John as the instrument of God under four headings. The nature of God, the incarnation of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and the coming of God. And we're going to fit his theology in those four little hangers. Let's begin here with the nature of God. We begin here in John's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 20 through 24. John tells us that God is spirit. The context is where Jesus is revealing this to the woman of Samaria. He said, I must needs go through Samaria. His disciples went with him. As he begins to encounter this woman, you're familiar with the story. In verse 20, Jesus has, had pointed out to her about her sin, about by living with a man and, and having three husbands. And he went from a, from a, a rabbi or a Jew to a, a, a prophet, and he ends up being declared Messiah, in fact, the Savior of the world there. So it's quite a progression as uh, Jesus ministers unto this woman. In verse 20, she is trying to cover up her sin to an extent by declaring her religiosity. And she declares how her fathers have worshipped in that mountain and the Jews in Jerusalem. But she was relating this to the old concept of localized worship, the temple. God never intended that as an ideal or the norm of worship. It was only temporary for a time. For God is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, and he cannot be confined by a building. Solomon himself said it. The heavens of heaven cannot contain your glory. How will this house contain you? 
Notice verse 21 and 22. Jesus first told her there was a time coming when the Father would be worshipped neither in Jerusalem or where they were. But at least the Jews knew what they were worshipping. The Samaritans did not. So he rebukes her. He corrects her bad theology. Then in verse 23 and 24, Jesus then told her that the hour was not only uh, coming, but it had arrived when the true worshipers of God would worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father was seeking such to worship him. In spirit and in truth, not through ritual and localized setting. God has created man in his image and his likeness, the scriptures tell us. We are spirit. The real you, the real me is spirit. God's given me a body to communicate myself through the, my spirit. He's given me a soul which deals with the emotion, the intellect, and the will. But basically, I am spirit, and so are you. When we die, our spirit leaves the body. Our body remains. God communicates with you and myself through the Spirit. He has a relationship with man because he is spirit and we are spirit. Now, God, who is spirit, appears many times in the Old Testament in theophanies or theophonic appearances. In other words, a fire, a cloud, some visible form to give evidence of his presence. But he's not a fire. He's not a cloud. When he appears in the Old Testament in a physical human form, that's what's called a Christophany, Christ appearing in the Old Testament prior to the incarnation. Remember when the angels came to Abraham? One was God. That's Christ. Because Christ is the only one who was descended from the Father and made the Father known. We're going to see that in John 1.18. So God is not worshipped through mere mechanical or ceremonial observances, but that which is from the heart, genuine in accord with Scripture. That's what God honors. He honored the temple of, in the Old Testament because that's what he said he would honor. Now he is going to change that altogether as he comes into the new covenant. It's no longer just the Jews, but Jew and Gentile. He also changes the focus of the people. Now, secondly, John tells us that God is life. Not only spirit, but that God is life. The very principle of energy called life is self-originating and self-sustaining with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1 says. That says it all. The Bible never goes out to prove that God is. The Bible states and affirms that God is. It doesn't try to prove it. So rather than trying to prove that God is, the Bible begins from the standpoint that he does exist and he is the cause of everything. He is the creator. He is the origin and the sustainer. John 5, 26 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. The very opening of the gospel here in John, 
In chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's not only the origin, but he's the sustainer. Stop and think. You have voluntary muscles and involuntary muscles. Thank God you don't have to think to breathe, or you wouldn't be able to sleep at night. He's a sustainer. The life of God is described as eternal, according to John. You know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Same thing, eternal life. That's the purpose of God for this world. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son has, shall not have life or see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. John 3.36. So there's no other option. Either you have eternal life or you have the judgment of God's wrath on you. Now, eternal life can be described in two ways. From the believing standpoint, from the non-believing standpoint. From the believing standpoint, eternal life, as we'll see, is eternal existence with God. Eternal life on the non-believer standpoint is eternal separation from God. Okay? So it's not a matter whether we want to live forever. We're going to live forever. All we can choose is where we want to live forever. Everybody's going to live forever. You don't just die and cease to exist, okay? You're going to live. Where do you want to live? That's the whole point. Jesus has called that eternal life in 1 John 1, 2. That eternal life. The life that is eternal is twofold. The primary emphasis is quality. God-like life, righteousness and holiness. It's a quality of life. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it, what? More abundantly, John 10.10. 10. So it speaks of quality of life here. This is for here now. I came that they have life more abundantly. So a more quality, a better quality of life. When? Now while you're living. So that's the primary definition of eternal life in the scriptures for us here and now. Secondly, is life that never ends. When we cease to exist in this physical body, we will live forever with God. That is the ultimate definition, but not the primary definition for us in the New Testament. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. When you're born again, you have eternal life. The very purpose of the Gospel of John, as we stated in the beginning, was that they might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and in believing they might have obtained Eternal life. John 20, 30, and 31. That's why John wrote these things and chose those specific things. This eternal life is obtained through a new birth, as you know. It's not something you pay for. It's not something that you obtain because you join a church scroll. It's not because you are a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Calvary Chapelist or whatever. It's because you are born again. 
The opening prologue of John 1.12 says, As many as received Jesus, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, and to those who believe in his name. He's speaking of the new birth. The invitation is open to all, by the way, John 3.16, whosoever. The spiritual birth is given very clear and very detailed to Nicodemus in John 3, 1 through 15. You're familiar with the story. He came by night to speak to Jesus. And he declared to Jesus, we know you're a man sent from God because no man can do these miracles unless God be with him. It sounds like a correct statement, but it's wrong. The Antichrist is going to come. He's not going to be from God. He's going to be from Satan, and he's going to do miracles. So miracles are no credentials that you're from God. Those miracles must be in accord with the Scriptures to prove that you're from God. If they contradict the Scriptures, they're not of God. It's just that simple. You know the whole dialogue? He goes on to say you must be born again or you never see the kingdom of God in in, in verse 3. Nicodemus scratching his head, couldn't understand it. Jesus goes on to distinguish that which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. He makes a distinction between a natural birth that all of us have through our parents from that which we have from above in verse 5 and 8 of John 3. He makes that distinction. The new birth is not understood by the natural man. Nicodemus didn't understand it. He was religious, but he was a natural man. And it's not understood by natural man because it's based on the scriptures and the spirit of God making them alive for salvation. And Jesus goes on to expound that in verse 9 to 15. And he says, you know, it's like the wind. It blows where it wills and you can't see it, but you see the effects upon it. So when you're born again, your life changes, not from within, but the effect of the spirit on your life. Just like you look at a tree and the wind's blowing from, from left to right, the, the tree bends this way. And you don't see the wind, but you know there's wind coming from that direction because you can see the manifestation upon the object. And so the same with you and I. When we're born again, we don't change outwardly. We don't get prettier. We don't get uglier. But we start acting a little different because we have the Spirit of God now dealing with our hearts, ministering unto us, turning on the light. And there's an effect, a radical effect. We practice righteousness, evidence of our new birth, 1 John 2.29 says. We no longer practice sin as a habit of life, 1 John 3, 9 says. We have capacity, and we're not perfect, but we do not practice sin the way we used to, and we don't live the way we used to if we're born again. Now, thirdly, John tells us that God is light. Okay? God, by virtue of being light, is perfect and holy. 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. 1 John 4 and 5 and 9 says that God, by virtue of being light, is self-revealing. He's not discovered by man's intellectual understanding. Listen to him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. The true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. 
So there in the opening prologue again, John tells us that. In chapter 1 of John, verse 4 through 5 and 9. And he makes these contrasts of light and darkness. Jesus said that he was the light of the world in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. John tells us that man's nature is bent towards darkness. It's one of his main points in the Gospel of John 3, 19. He says, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Man has a capacity for good, but his bent is towards evil. And what brings out evil in man more than anything else is to tell him, don't do it. You can't do it. You walk down the street, they just painted the stinking building. They put there a sign Wet paint, don't touch. What do people do? They go by there and they touch it to see if it's wet. Paul says, I did not know sin till the law said, Thou shalt not covet. Then it slew me. The very fact that something tries to restrain me provokes my sin nature. Man's a lawbreaker. The law doesn't reward me, the law accuses me. Punishes me. Fourthly, John tells us that God is love. The very nature of God is love, and the correlation between God and who is love and the ones who are born of God is inseparable. Listen to 1 John 4 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God. And knows God. Now, footnote. Though we have this potential as Christians to love, and the word is agape that John uses, we also cannot yield to agape. Doesn't mean that we always walk in love. We have the potential to yield to God's agape love, but we also can say no to God's love. When we say no, we fail to honor God. When we yield, we always glorify God. But Christians say no to God's agape love when they don't want to obey. We have a free will. Now, the denial of God's love in the life of a person is a denial of knowing God, John says. Listen to 1 John 4, 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, we're talking about habitual habit. We're not talking that we can't miss the mark. We're talking about a person who habitually does not love. How can he say he knows God? It's inconsistent. The evidence of love is self-sacrifice and denial of self. Listen to 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. The evidence that God loves us is He did something to demonstrate it. He sent the Son, made Him flesh, crucified Him, die in our place. Love must show itself evident. 
through deeds and acts and words. When word and deed become one, it becomes truth, 1 John says. Very important. Pastor Xavier Reese, providing the evidence of the love of God through the scriptures provided by the Apostle John. And there's much more of this message to come next time. But if your schedule won't permit you to tune in, as always, you can pick up a copy. And the title you want to ask for is simply John Part 2. It's available on CD for only $4. And this might be a study you'd like to pass on to someone in your church or Bible study when you're through. Now, once again, the title to ask for is John Part 2, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. And then join us for more Simple Truths next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com 